Welcome to Needles, Hooks, and Crooks, a podcast about fiber felonies. I am Ashley, and Natalie is here with me, and we definitely need to start this episode with a content warning and a disclaimer. Today's episode will feature discussions of infanticide and sexual abuse. So take care of yourself, and if these are topics that you do not wish to hear discussed, please skip this episode. Maybe instead you can go check out an episode of one of our favorite podcasts, Fiber Nation, by Interweave, which touches on yarn, knitting, and culture broadly. And if you or someone you know is the victim of sexual abuse, we'll be putting some resources from the National Sexual Violence Resource Center, which is based in the U.S., as well as some information for the National Sexual Assault Telephone Hotline in the show notes. So, Natalie, let's hear about this knitting related murder that took quite a bit of wine to be able to write up. Yeah, I sat on this for months. I mean, almost six months with a complete inability to actually type up the details of the story that I had researched thoroughly back in August. So take a deep breath. Here we go. It was 1973 in Dunleary, near South Dublin in Ireland, and two 11-year-old boys collecting seaweed off the beach went in search of a plastic bag to to stash their haul in. Seeing a green bag in the laneway nearby, they went for it, only to find it held a bundle of blood-soaked newspapers wrapping up a dead infant. This newborn baby girl, Nolene, was found to have been stabbed to death stabbed in the face, chest, and neck over 40 times with a knitting needle. You won't be surprised to learn many of those stabs were post-mortem, but that makes this story that much more terrible. And if it wasn't horrifying to begin with, the coroner found that baby Nolene died from a hemorrhage resulting from stab wounds to the neck, which also confirmed that she had been born alive. public eye in 2005 when the inquest was reopened for the second time. So what happened in the 32 years in between? Back in 1973 when the baby was found, she was not identified nor claimed. So once the cause of death was determined, she was simply buried in the Holy Angels Cemetery. Then in 1994, yes, that is still 21 years after this horrific knitting needle murder, One Cynthia Owen went to the police and claimed the infant, telling the story that she had finally been able to face and piece together after years and years of therapy. This story is terrible. Are you ready? I guess I'm ready. I think uh, I'm a bit reluctant, but I know that sometimes these stories are important to hear, so we can hopefully maybe uh, prevent things like this from happening in the future. Cynthia remembers giving birth in the house in Dalkey, aged 11, after years of sexual abuse in which she had been raped by her father and her brothers, sometimes after her mother had tied her hands. She said her infant daughter was stabbed with her mother's knitting needle in front of her. 
The inquest was reopened for the first time in 1995 after Cynthia went to the police, and members of her family were questioned. However, during and after this inquest, a series of unfortunate and very unhelpful events occurred that both deepened the mysterious knitting needle baby death situation and made it significantly more concerning. I'm thinking we maybe need to go through a tragedy timeline to keep this horror show that is Cynthia Owen's life moderately concise. In 1995, once this inquest into the knitting needle baby murder reopened, Cynthia's brother Martin told their sister Teresa that he had been sodomized repeatedly in their childhood home. Then he hanged himself in the kitchen. For years, no evidence turns up to help resolve the baby murder and time passes. Cut to 2002 when Cynthia's brother Michael, who had been suffering from depression and alcoholism for quite some time, suddenly goes missing, vanishing without a trace. Then three years later in 2005, his body turns up at a dart station in Killarney. That's a type of rail station. It was suspected that his death was suicide, but with no evidence to support that allegation or any other cause of death, the coroner returned an open verdict. Then, three weeks after Michael's body was found, the sister, Teresa, the one who Martin had told about his childhood abuse, she commits suicide. At this time, it is now 10 years after Martin's suicide, and Teresa copied his method, hanging herself in her kitchen at the age of 33. She also left a 37-page manifesto detailing absolutely shocking and appalling abuse that she and Michael had both suffered as children in that horrifying so-called home that they and Cynthia grew up in. Teresa's manifesto also named names. Teresa's story corroborated Cynthia's, which, as horrifying as it sounds already, is actually worse. Cynthia was subjected to incestuous rape by her father and brothers since the age of seven. At 11, she recalled feeling ill in her school classroom. This was actually her being kicked by the fetus inside her. And she went home thinking she was sick. There, lying in a bedroom in the dark at home, her mother told her she was a freak and would have a deformed baby. Not too long after this incident, she went into labor and, feeling very sick, was crying on the floor in the corner of the bedroom. Her brother, and it is unclear which brother, or if it's either of the two who committed or maybe committed suicide, there were 10 or 11 children in that family and we've only named four of them. Anyway, her brother, a brother, came into the room and stomped on her yelling, that's not my baby and if you tell anyone that's my baby, I'll kill you. After she gave birth, her father came in the room with scissors and a knitting needle. Then her parents started arguing about who was going to do it, and her mother stabbed the newborn with the knitting needle right in front of Cynthia. It's just so shocking, and each detail to the story makes it even more horrific. The father lost interest in raping Cynthia by 14 after she birthed a second baby, this time a stillborn boy, 
and at that point, father and grandmother started prostituting her out for money to buy more alcohol. All these allegations, of course, were denied by her mother and father, who I cannot believe were actually still alive, given the lifestyle that I'm imagining. And while some siblings corroborated the accusations, those probably also having suffered sexual abuse, I imagine, others, presumably the abusers, denied them all. So yeah, that is about the worst, most horrible story ever. Just absolutely the worst. Just horrific. And it features a newborn being murdered with a knitting needle by her own grandmother slash aunt. However, I, I should point out that Cynthia, she did escape that whole, that whole situation. And she did find a support system, and she's undergone years and years and years of therapy, and she's now doing well. And she wrote a memoir, which is aptly called Living with Evil, and we're going to link that below in the show notes. Wow, Natalie, that that was quite, quite the story. And I thank you for taking the energy and the time to write that up. And overall, I think a key takeaway I have is just how resilient and strong Cynthia is. And I hadn't even known when you had mentioned this story to me at first that she had written a memoir. And so I definitely think I'll look into that so that I can hear this story in her own words as well. Yeah, I also would like to read the memoir, but at the same time, also not read the memoir. It's... um, it's a weird place that we find ourselves in both being fascinated by true crime. And then when you're in the place of researching and relaying the stories, it's just so incredibly different from watching a docu-series or um, reading a, reading something that someone else has done the legwork on and conveyed. It's a very different experience. Anyway, thanks for hanging in there. Um, And if anyone is still listening, thanks for hanging in there as well. I'm sure that was rough for you to hear um, also. Uh, So on to lighter things, what are you knitting and snacking on, Ashley? Yeah, so right now in terms of knitting, I am working on the Red Cedar Hat by Lindsay Fowler using yarn from Spin Cycle Yarns, which I just learned recently opened a physical store in the Pacific Northwest, so that's exciting, as well as yarn from the Farmer's Daughter's Fibers out of Montana. So that's what I'm working on, and I'm about halfway through. I just got to the Latvian braid, and I've never done that technique, so I'm interested, interested, excited, I'm excited to learn a new knitting technique. What about you? Well, um, just to keep things <laughs> the same, you and I are also both working on the Red Cedar Hat. I'm using a leftover ND Yarn Company uh, yarn for the main color of mine from various random projects that I have. And I'm also using this super cool color changing yarn called Abracadabra that Emma, you know Emma, uh, got for me mm-hmm. and... I think a hat is a perfect place for it. But I'm also knitting Portage, which is this cardigan I've had in my queue for like five years. And as usual, it's going to be a mishmash of yarns. I'm using some local Montana yarn from, uh, oh 
goodness, ranching traditions is the name on Instagram. Tobacco root fiber. I'll link it in the show notes. <laughs> this is ridiculous. Um, in combination with, I can see the ancient arts. I was going to say, I can see the logo ancient arts, uh, yarn and some random other skein. Anyway, they're not quite close enough. It'll be a little stripey, but, um, I think it'll work. Usually my mishmash things work and I'm excited to finally be knitting portage. I'm always very impressed with your ability to stash bust and find these amazing color cups combinations that is not a skill I have I just like for the red cedar hat I definitely bought a kit because it's just like oh this is way easier and yeah I'm always impressed with the beautiful things you come up with when you stat- stash dive and even if the colors don't match perfectly it still turns out amazing oh well thank you <laughs> you know along those lines um you can tell that the 80s are back in fashion because you know my uh forest tree sweater that I knit last year that mm-hmm. everyone in our circle unanimously agreed was hideous and that my choice of um, my, Miami uh, diner colors was awful. Um, <laughs> I wore that last week teaching and um, and my students went bonkers for this sweater. <laughs> they really? <loved> it. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I was like, oh God, well, that's exactly right. 80s are back. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. I never get compliments on what I've did for my students. <laughs> I need to mix up my color choices, apparently, or channel some 1990s fashion. <laughs> <laughs> what about snacks? Snacking. So I have done some baking recently. And one of the things I made today, actually, was a scone recipe from Smitten Kitchen. It is... I really wanted cinnamon buns, but they take a lot of time and I was feeling lazy. And I found this cinnamon sugar scone recipe that only takes like half an hour to make. And they were amazing. So that's my new kind of quick go-to when I'm craving something cinnamon sugar, when I don't have the time to like proof uh, cinnamon bun uh, dough. So we'll link that in the show notes as well. But it was like a perfect breakfast. And then I had another one this afternoon as a snack mm. and there's only one left. What about you? What are you snacking on? Well, not anything that quite tastes as good as that. Well, I don't know. Depends. Um, For some reason in winter, I get super obsessed with bougie snacks like uh, smoked salmon, lox. I don't don't really know why, um, but Winco always to the rescue. There's sort of these (laughs) single serving sized smoked salmon packs you can get there and just uh, like to smear some cream cheese on some rye crackers and pop bites bites of bougie lox snacks in my mouth which is ridiculous but so good that sounds delicious and also a bit of a mouthful what you just described (laughs) in terms of vocabulary not not like physical snacking but yeah that sounds really good I still have not taken full advantage of the Winco here you always talk about how great it is and I literally live very close to one and have like rarely shopped there I'm too afraid of running into my students. (laughs) Yeah, some of my students work there and that's just a thing. But the bulk section is to die for. So um, that's why I love it. Well, thank you again, Natalie, for sharing that story with. And um, yeah, hopefully next month we'll 
I don't think we know what we're writing about yet, but we'll come up with a an episode that's just maybe a little bit lighter. And in the meantime, happy knitting and don't stab anyone. <laughs>